to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Lawrence O'Donnell, the host of MSNBC's primetime show, The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, and now the author of a new book, Playing with Fire, The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. O'Donnell served as a senior advisor to Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the 1990s and then moved to television, where he wrote a number of West Wing episodes and also served as an executive producer, even winning an Emmy. He's now a news guy, and this book is all about the 1968 election, which was one of the craziest in our history, 2016 included. Lawrence O'Donnell joins me now. This is a pleasure. So your book is called The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. What exactly transformed in 1968? Oh, just everything. Uh, we, um, we, the, the previous election, 1964, uh, was a pretty stable, uh, normal presidential election. It was a lopsided outcome, uh, LBJ winning overwhelmingly, uh, mostly on the emotional momentum and aftermath of uh, President Kennedy's assassination, uh, but also running against uh, what was perceived at the time, Barry Goldwater, as an extreme conservative. And extremes didn't win in American politics at the presidential level. Uh, it was always a kind of, um, you know, merger toward the center as you, as you approach the finish line of those campaigns. Uh, then comes 1968, and something happens that had never happened before uh, in our history, which is uh, a member of the president's party decides to challenge the president for re-election and to do it on nothing less than the issue of life and death, uh, to challenge the president's conduct of a war, which includes drafting uh, young American men, sending them off to Vietnam. And so all of a sudden we have the first anti-war candidacy uh, in, in a major party uh, in American history. And that sets off a, a campaign chaos unlike anything we'd ever seen and unlike anything we've seen since. Uh, You're one, talking about Eugene McCarthy Yes, here. yes. Uh, and, you know, when, when I started writing this book, uh, Donald Trump was not yet running for president. Uh, and so I would say uh, privately to people that I'm writing a book about the most chaotic presidential campaign in history. Well, it still is, because if you look at 2016, that was a perfectly normal presidential campaign in every respect, using some of the uh, components that were created in 1968. Uh, but it had one profoundly eccentric candidate, exactly one eccentric candidate. Um, and that's, what, that's why people feel that 2016 was chaotic. One person was chaotic, but the campaign process and the campaigns themselves outside of the Trump campaign were not. Um, so, so then what did McCarthy do that was so earth shattering uh, for politics, do you think? The, the, the permanently earth shattering component of it was the identification of the power of the insurgency from the left in the Democratic Party. And the last people to see this coming uh, was, of course, the Democratic establishment, all of whom believed McCarthy didn't have a chance. This was a hopeless venture. McCarthy goes up to New Hampshire and wins the New Hampshire primary by coming in a very strong second. 
It is reported basically as winning. I was a kid at the time in high school. I thought Gene McCarthy won New Hampshire because that's what the news media was was saying. It was many, many, many years later. I think it was sometime in the 1990s uh, when someone said to me, well, you know, he didn't win. He came in second. And, and, um, but that's how earth-shattering it was. Gene McCarthy's success in New Hampshire draws Bobby Kennedy into the presidential campaign. If Gene McCarthy had not run, Bobby Kennedy would not have run. You present the sort of pre-JFK assassination Bobby Kennedy in your book, I thought pretty harshly. This is a guy who worked with Roy Cohn, who worked for Joe McCarthy, who had shady connections while he was attorney general. And then you sort of talk about that there was somewhat of a self-conscious effort on the part of people around Kennedy that they knew that he had to somehow change his image. My question for you is, by the time you get to 1968 and his decision to enter the race, do you think that that was a new Bobby Kennedy, or do you think that that was more of a self-constructed image of a different, gentler Bobby Kennedy? There was not one adult in the United States of America who thought the same thing in 1968 as he or she thought in 1960. Not one. This was culturally, socially, the most revolutionary decade in the history of the United States. Uh, no one's hair was the same uh, by 1968 than what their hair was in 1960. And so what I saw in Bobby Kennedy was in the 50s, a politician of his time and of his place in the Democratic Party, uh, to a certain extent, the political operative that his father wanted him to be to uh, in certain ways that his brother as in, as a senator needed him to be and and future presidential candidate jack kennedy needed him to be um ruthless was the most common word used for bobby kennedy then uh that's actually a word uh that that's a term of admiration in politics uh and so that's that's what people are striving for in the image of campaign manager a political operative who is, uh, you know, using his elbows to help advance the candidate, in this case, his brother. Uh, and so there, there's nothing about Bobby Kennedy that, that doesn't make sense. There's nothing about him in the 1950s um, that doesn't make sense. Even his work on uh, Joe McCarthy's uh, committee uh, investigating mythical communists, he only did it for a few months. And, and sickened of it, and sickened of it for uh, good reason, a revulsion at Roy Cohn, who was to go on to become Donald Trump's lawyer and mentor about how the world works. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, but there were an awful lot of um, liberals who were, uh, who, were all, who were very intent on proving that they were anti-communist at the time and proving it at the, you know, at the ballot box, basically. And there were a variety of ways to do that. Um, but I think Bobby yeah. Kennedy's most interesting speech um, before the assassination of his brother was delivered in, in North Dakota to absolutely zero conceivable political benefit. And it was delivered to a convention of Native American tribes in North Dakota. And it is of, um, of an eloquence and a humanity that would stand up word for word today if Bobby Kennedy had showed up at Standing Rock last year in North Dakota and said each of those words, they would hold up as strongly uh, today as they did then. And there was not a single politician in America who thought 
the plight of Native Americans of that time at that time was even worth commenting on. And that's in 1963 before the assassination. And so what you're seeing <clears throat> is the evolution of the social conscience of a man in the 1960s. And having lived through it myself as a kid at that time, it makes perfect sense to me. And, and you know, because you detailed during the Kennedy administration, the, the Kennedy administration's, let's say, um, uh, insufficient attitude towards civil rights and also its uh, its dealings with getting us somewhat involved. This is a debated issue in Vietnam. But by 1968, on these issues of civil rights and the Vietnam War, which Kennedy had come out against, you do think that there was a sincere change of heart about where he was as a politician and a man. Look, uh, every single politician's uh, attitude toward race and civil rights in the early 1960s was insufficient, as we look at it now. Martin Luther King was the only uh, recognized public speaker in America who everyone could hear whose approach to it was sufficient. Um, and even he was then being judged to be insufficient by the time you get to the mid and later 1960s uh, by the younger black leaders who were coming up at that time. And so um, I, I don't ever say in the book, I have judged Bobby Kennedy to be insufficient on these matters in 1961 and not in 1968. Uh, I'm just tracing the um, th that evolution, uh, recognizing that everyone was going through that evolution. There were segregationists in 1962 who were not segregationists in 1968. The, the, you know, this, this idea that, uh, that's out there, been out there for decades, that Bobby Kennedy kind of uh, exploited liberalism by joining it when it became cool and when it became the way to advance in the Democratic Party is a tempting idea the less you know and the less you understand about the way minds changed in 1968. This reminds me, just hearing you speak, this is slightly off topic, but you see issues now of race and gender, and uh, we were just briefly talking off air about uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment. And, to, you know, it does feel like we're in, we're in a similar moment where we may say six years ago, many people didn't have the same opinion on, not that sexual harassment was right or wrong or something, but that the way we look at these issues. Do, do, you, do you find any parallels to today? You've just been looking at the 1960s and you comment about American politics now. Yeah, the, the, I think one of the differences with sexual harassment is it didn't have marches. It, didn't, it, it hasn't, as an issue, had uh, its own kind of campaign, uh, other than being a subset of a general women's rights ca uh, campaign and, and enlightenment about feminism that really, that really took off in the 1970s. Uh, but the Anita Hill uh, testimony about uh, Clarence Thomas during that confirmation hearing, whether you believe it or not, was the moment that America was supposed to wake up. And I actually thought everybody did wake up and say, oh, okay, in the office, you can't make jokes like that. And you can't, it's, it's not a good idea to ask subordinates out on dates. And, and, and it seemed to me that everything you needed to know about what your behavior should be uh, was revealed to you in those hearings, uh, but apparently not. And, and no, apparently because, not. Because no campaign followed those hearings, you know. So just to now, just to go back to the book, I sorry to get us off track, but 
So Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Hubert Humphrey goes on to win the Democratic nomination. He goes on to eventually turn a bit against the Vietnam War, which his boss, or I shouldn't say boss, but his, which the president that he serves uh, is um, is waging. And Nixon goes on to to barely win, uh, win, win a close election. So I want to get to the Republicans, but what do you think this did, that chain of events to the Democratic Party going forward? Uh, it, it exposed um, – the weakness of party establishment in a way that it had never been exposed before. Party establishment was something you could think of as a strength that a party had, uh, that, that the party was going to surround the right guy because it had to be a guy uh, to get the nomination, which is what they did with Humphrey. Humphrey didn't run in a single primary, not one. He didn't win a single primary. All of his delegates, 100% of them, were handed to him in the inside game of collecting delegates at the convention, what would now be considered the so-called superdelegate system that Bernie Sanders railed against uh, last time. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, who came from the left as the insurgent, experienced exactly the same thing uh, that the McCarthy insurgency experienced in 1968, which was the resistance of the establishment that had already decided because the, remember, the establishment usually has to decide or does decide, chooses to decide, two years before the election, who their favorite is. And with Hillary Clinton, for example, they simply did that with polls that absolutely did look prohibitive. She was polling at 67% in the Democratic Party. And so they said, we all want to be with the winner. She's obviously going to be the winner. They all make their decision early, and then they're cemented onto it. Um, in, in 68, uh, that nomination was awarded entirely by maneuvering inside the convention hall while there was rioting going on outside the convention hall, the likes of which had never occurred in American politics. You had the nominee, uh, Hubert Humphrey, in his hotel suite smelling the tear gas on the street that were, the Chicago police were using to try to suppress these protesters, protesting the anti-democratic procedures that are going on inside that convention hall. You have punches being thrown on the convention hall floor. Uh, Mike Wallace is being punched. Uh, Dan Rather's being punched on the floor. These CBS News correspondents. It's a, it's a scene that today is inconceivable. You, you had to have been sitting there watching it on your TV as I was as a kid in high school uh, to believe that this is what a convention could become. Uh, and, and, and that's all part of the, uh, the chaotic flow of that year so that by the time we're sitting in front of our TVs and watching madness break loose on the streets of Chicago and inside the convention hall and watching them mayor of Chicago stand up and scream profane anti-Semitic uh, rantings against a Jewish senator uh, who's up there endorsing George McGovern, it was not terribly surprising. Uh, a week before, if you'd said, will there be rioting and punches thrown inside the convention hall, uh, most of us would have said, hmm. I don't know. Uh, we wouldn't have said absolutely not. You know, there was a there was a flow to the chaos that that life became chaotic, and we all lived in that chaotic rhythm. I want to ask about the last uh, few weeks of the election, where um, which you cover in the book. So Humphrey is kind of closing the gap with Nixon, and um, you know we've been hearing recently about Russia's interference in the election, and you know uh, to the degree to which you know. 
the degree to which you know the election was influenced by outside forces and so on. There's there's a story from 1968 which has been rumored about and talked about for many years and has become more and more accepted as fact, which you cover in the book, which was um, what the Nixon campaign did with the Paris peace talks. Do you want to do you want to briefly explain what happened and then I can? It's the first presidential campaign won with collusion with foreign governments, uh, both South Vietnam and North Vietnam. And that is now proven. It was a case where we were getting closer and closer and closer over the decades. Uh, But Jack Farrell, in his decisive biography of Nixon that came out early in 2017, got to the memos, the Haldeman memos, Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, campaign chief of staff. The memos that Haldeman wrote to himself notes of what Nixon told him to tell the South Vietnamese through their, uh, the, the person they used to communicate this, this out of the movies character, this uh, beautiful Asian operative, this, this woman in Washington, Anna Chenault, who, uh, who is just a, she enters this book in the, as if, as a device of a Hollywood screenwriter. But her job is to secretly communicate um, with the Chinese, with the South Vietnamese, uh, with the North Vietnamese to make sure that there is no progress toward peace in Vietnam because the thing Richard Nixon needs to win is that the war is continuing and that it's going badly. That is what Richard Nixon needs to win. And Richard Nixon fears throughout the campaign year Two things he fears the most. One thing he fears the most is Bobby Kennedy. He believes Bobby Kennedy can beat him. Uh, and when Bobby Kennedy gets into the race, Nixon is sickened. The other thing Nixon fears, and the only thing left to fear after Bobby Kennedy is out of the race and assassinated, is that the war will somehow turn toward peace, that the country will perceive some kind of progress in Paris, in peace negotiations, and Nixon must not let that happen. And so he communicates secretly to the South Vietnamese, to our client, basically, in South Vietnam, do not, do not agree to anything with Lyndon Johnson. I will get you a better deal. Hang on. He gets the same thing communicated to the North Vietnamese, don't agree to anything. I will get you a better deal. Hang on. So what that means is what Richard Nixon needed to get elected was he needed more American soldiers to be killed every week in Vietnam, which he got. And he got that by convincing the South Vietnamese to pull out of talks in Paris, which they had agreed to enter. They told President Johnson, we will do this. And shortly after telling President Johnson they will do it, they pulled out. And so I think in the in the remaining five or five plus years of the Vietnam War, which Nixon presided over, you have over 25,000 more American deaths. You have hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese deaths that we can't even count. And uh, then you have Nixon pulling out of the war on terms that probably were not that different than would have been offered in 1968. They were available. Those terms were available to LBJ in the summer of 1968. They were available to Nixon the day he was inaugurated. Every life lost under the Nixon presidency, which you have to start counting in, say, October of 1968, because the the deaths attributable to Nixon start actually before he's elected and continue through that. Uh, Every one of them uh, completely wasted and 
knowingly wasted by Richard Nixon because what Richard Nixon stepped into was the same uh, conceptual quicksand that Lyndon Johnson was stuck in, had been stuck in until the summer of 1968, which was he didn't want to be the first president to lose a war. And so that is why Nixon kept it going, knowing it couldn't be won. Nixon believed it couldn't be won when he was a candidate. He would never say that publicly. Uh, and, yeah. And if we're, if, we're, if we're tallying up things, we should also mention the bombing of Cambodia and the effect on that country, which came after Nixon entered office. And um, obviously the, the chaos that followed the bombing of Cambodia cost um, hundreds of thousands, millions of yeah. lives. We have seen – you know whether we have collusion uh, with the Trump campaign or not is something we're going to patiently wait to find out. Uh, the verdict is in on the Nixon uh, presidential election victory. Collusion was very much a part of it. One interesting aspect of your book is you talk about Lyndon Johnson was aware of what Nixon had done, and can you talk? Johnson, I guess, died about four years later, but the Johnson people did not go public with this yeah. information. Well, it turns out, uh, I think we've always thought of the perfect crime as the, the crime you can get away with. Well, there's an even more perfect crime than that because you do always have to anticipate getting caught. And it turns out the perfect crime is the one where when they catch you, they are afraid to reveal that they've caught you. And that's what happened with Nixon. So Lyndon Johnson discovers uh, what's going on. CIA picks up what's going on, what Nixon is up to. Uh, Lyndon Johnson puts uh, wiretaps all over the South Vietnamese embassy uh, in Washington. He puts FBI tails on Anna Chenault and others to see what's going on. He, he is uh, picking up these wiretap transcripts that are very clear of exactly what's going on here with the Nixon campaign's collusion uh, with South Vietnam. And he calls up uh, Senator Dirksen, Republican senator, trusted Republican senator, and he tells him, I've found out everything. I know what they're doing. And what LBJ believes is that Dirksen will tell Nixon and it will stop. Uh, that's what he's hoping. Uh, and of course, Dirksen does tell Nixon and it doesn't stop. And uh, and then LBJ gets on the phone and talks to Nixon and tries to make it clear to him that he knows everything and this better stop. Um, and again, it doesn't stop. And then, and as LBJ said to Dirksen, you know, uh, he, he he threatened to just make it public, to just let the New York Times and the Washington Post know about it. And the people who prevent Johnson from making it public are his own Secretary of State, his own Secretary of Defense, who sit him down and say, for the good of the country, we should not make this public, especially on the possibility that Nixon might win because we don't want people to think that their president is so corrupt. Uh, now, their president is so corrupt, but those people in that White House at that time believed that for the good of the country, it's better that this not be known. Uh, and that's the way White uh, yeah, Houses we can, thought at we that can, time. Well, or we can leave it to people to interpret how they think any parallels to what we've seen in the last year and a half with mm -hmm. the Obama administration and uh, Trump and Russia, which I think is a much more complicated situation than the one faced by Johnson. But um, – I think some of the critiques of uh, the Obama, the way the Obama administration dealt with what they were learning about Trump and Russia are open for well, criticism. One of the elements that's common between the two cases is Nixon, uh, 
LBJ was advised, this will look terribly political. If you come out two days, because this was very close to the election, if you come out two days before the election and accuse Richard Nixon of what you're calling treason, uh, which technically it wasn't, by the way, you can only commit treason under an active declaration of war, which is why we haven't had a treason case since World War II. But that's what LBJ called it on the phone with Dirksen. This is treason. Uh, They said to him, look, It'll look very political if you try to do it. People might not believe it because the political timing of this is what it is. And and the Obama case had the same component. Is there also was it was it also the case that the Johnson people were worried that the Nixon people knew things about their own kind of shenanigans going on? I didn't find that. Uh, that, that That's been that, rumored for a long time. Right. Sort of I, that. I, I, I didn't find that. And and but what I could find and what I could document was were the set of reasons that Nixon was being being advised not to do it. And they they made perfect sense to me in the way those men in those White Houses of that era thought. That is the, that they thought very much in terms of protecting the institution of the presidency. Impeachment was an inconceivable thing to them. And they feared, they actually feared that if you reveal this and if it becomes publicly in effect proven and Nixon's elected, he will have to be impeached. And it was inconceivable to them, even to Johnson, that a president would be impeached. We should never have a president impeached. Just to turn to your earlier career, which was about writing um, a different kind of writing, which you wrote for the West Wing. Uh, People say now we're living in a TV show. I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, this isn't reality, so on and so forth. Do you feel like you have some unique insight in that as someone who's written a fake, uh, not actual administration in office? But also, I was curious, if you think about writing a TV president now, would you have to do it differently? Yeah, Trump has ruined uh, any attempt to write White House scenes now in fiction. Uh, And I think he's ruined it for the foreseeable future, minimum maybe 10 years or so. Um, What The only thing thing left for screen drama – set in the White House is uh, actual historical drama about real presidents um, because uh, Trump has changed uh, gravitational forces. Uh, if you look at the pilot of the West Wing, for example, uh, brilliantly written by Aaron Sorkin, the giant controversy of the whole thing is that our character Josh has said something slightly impolitic about the religious right. Uh, and do we have to fire him? Does the president have to make a speech about this? Do we have to do a giant public apology? That's the big strategic thing that occupies the whole hour. Uh, Sounds that, quaint. That, that yeah. would be an absurd. No one would think there was drama in that, in any of those scenes now, in none of them. Uh, but if you say we're going to do uh, you know, a drama inside, you know, Nixon's White House or inside FDR's White House. That's, that's, I think, the only place you can go on screen well, now. I think Trump's ruined fiction. Well, this is an issue with Alec Baldwin, too, who I think we all agree is a brilliant actor and a brilliant uh, impersonator. But some of the stuff, it's sort of, um, it's, at one level, it's funny, but it's also just weird because he's saying things for laughs that are not that different than what Trump actually says. Mm-hmm. As did Tina Fey with Sarah Palin. This, yeah. th- that's the pre-existing that's right. model, which was kind of which was relentlessly entertaining. And what we were stunned by, as we would hear her say it, is that that no, this was not the product of comedy writers. This was the product of someone who wants to be vice president. And and then the country was never tested with the reality of her being vice president. So it remained a joke. And the Trump stuff has a different 
burden uh, as comedy uh, because of this reality, uh, which is incredibly painful to a majority of Americans. It's it's not some small minority of Americans who find the Trump presidency painful. It is disapproved of by virtually two thirds of the country now, and um, and and so it, it's it's an it's a very peculiar zone. I mean, comedy's never ha- had that to deal with before. Uh, Do you enjoy covering it every night? Enjoy isn't the word for it. Um, I, I don't know. It's like saying, you know, to a pilot, "Do you enjoy flying through hurricanes?" And um, you just have to. You know, you don't have a choice. You can't land the plane. There's a hurricane, and so. Um, I, I don't enjoy I, – I'm asked that all the time, by the way. So I, I, I've, I should have a rehearsed answer to it, and I don't. I should ask fresher questions. No, too. no, no. But it's a, it's a very legitimate question. I'll tell you one thing about it that is easier. There's one little thing that's conceptually easier, and that is that the show's jurisdiction has become much clearer, much, much clearer. Um, you know, I, for example, haven't said a word about Harvey Weinstein, not because I'm avoiding the subject, because I no longer have room in my 45 minutes of television, you know, with the commercials, uh, to squeeze that in because it does not rise above a level of importance than the things we're talking about uh, involving the president that day. And in a normal, you know, presidency, the Weinstein thing would have been, you know, five straight nut- nights for us, possibly the lead story. Well, let me just ask you before, last question before you go, is that you spent a fair amount of time in Hollywood, um, certainly for someone who hosts a political show. And w- what have you made of this, these these people in Hollywood coming forward? Um, do you think that this is really going to change the industry? Oh, I think absolutely it is. Because you saw with Weinstein uh, something you hadn't seen since O.J. Simpson, which was a collapse in a day from the top of the mountain in a day. I mean, if you look at the spectacular life collapses in American, in modern America, they don't happen in a day. They take sometimes years. They take, you know, in Nixon's case, 18 months from the beginning of the Watergate investigation to now he's on the helicopter leaving. Um, that's, th- this is a day. And and I, I as soon as I saw the first day of Weinstein coverage, I said to my friends in show business, that is the end of him. He will never work again. And it's the end of the company. The company won't survive. And my friends in show business went, oh, no, no. Here's why the company will survive. Three days later, they realized the company's gone. Um, is when that- I saw Ashley Judd's name in the time story in the third paragraph or second paragraph, that's when I thought that when, when someone – which maybe is a depressing thing to say that – the general trust of people is higher if they're famous or it will register with people in, in different ways than if this was some woman, you know, a hotel maid or something who he'd done something horrible to. But when I saw her name in the second paragraph, I thought, wow, this, well, this one, is it for him. One thing Ashley Judd's name does is it helps you evaluate the credibility of what you're reading. It helps you it helps you think about what are the incentives for telling this story. And I think most people's contemplation of that landed very solidly in Ashley Judd's favor. Uh, you know, that's true in the Kevin Spacey story also. This actor comes out and tells the story. And and uh, as you stared at it, because you know who this is and you, you think about it, it, it does add credibility to it uh, and and has power. It, it You know, look, I thought I, – I, look, I'm, I'm the – I'm the fool who thought that the Clarence Thomas 
stories told by Anita Hill to the Senate Judiciary Committee were the giant game change of this in American life. Uh, I hope this is. I can't imagine if this isn't what it, what else it would take. Can't even say game change now because of Mark Halperin. So there you go. There's that. Uh, yeah. Um, Lawrence O'Donnell. The book is Playing with Fire: The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Audrey Dilley. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Last thing, if you're looking for a podcast to keep you up to date on the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance, subscribe to Slate Money. It's hosted by Felix Salmon of Fusion, Slate Money Box columnist Jordan Wiseman, and Anna Shemansky. And every week they tackle topics like the Republican tax plan, consumer credit protections, and international corruption. Subscribe to Slate Money wherever you get your podcasts. Slate Money.